Well, good morning, Chapel family. Good to be with you today. We are starting a new series this fall. We're studying the book of Titus. I'd encourage you to take your Bibles and open them, open them up to the book of Titus. It does sound like uh, the hurricane is going to hit Florida, I think, today is what I hear. And maybe as we begin, let's take a moment to pray for there's a lot of folks uh, suffering in Houston and going to be suffering uh, in Florida. Pastor Aaron is down right now with his grandparents, his parents at his grandmother's house in Houston doing some cleanup there and will be traveling back tomorrow. Can you pray that he will uh, have safety while he's there and safety as he travels back? And uh, let's go to the Lord. Father, thank You for the blessing of being here. What a, what a privilege to, uh, to be together as the people of God. What a blessing to be able to open Your Word and find here the promises that we can stand on. Your Word is, it is the inerrant, authoritative, infallible Word. We can bank on it, count on it, build our lives upon it. So I pray that um, You would guide us as we study this morning. Father, I also bring before You those who are suffering in Houston and and uh, those who are in Florida. Lord, we our hearts go out to these folks. We ask that You would protect folks in, in Florida from, from uh, loss of life and great devastation. Father, we pray that You would be at work in and through all of this, that You would... Uh, that you would use what to us is tragedy and and uh, disaster, and that you would work through it to bring glory to yourself, and especially, Father, to turn the hearts of people to you. That as they face fear, as they face death, as they face loss of things, that it would cause them to turn to you and find hope and to find life eternal life in Christ. And, and uh, so, Father, we, we ask Your, Your grace and mercy in our land. Lord, show us ways that we can uh, be a part of ministering to others and sharing the good news. Now, teach us here from this, this precious little book. May our hearts be yielded to You and listening and uh, respond to what You teach us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have you ever bought one of those beds in a box? Uh, we had the opportunity this year to pick up a couple of those to go on a set of bunk beds. And uh, it's really pretty cool. You pull them out of this, this little box. You pull out this, this little roll that's wrapped up in plastic. And you take a knife and you cut the plastic and stand back. And it just... And pretty soon you've got this mattress, and it's it's amazing. Uh, you know, it, suddenly you just discover that there's a whole lot of stuff in that little package. This book of Titus is like that. Three short chapters, but it's just loaded with great stuff. You pop the seal, and you find that there is more here than you ever imagined. So we're going to be in this little book for ten weeks. So sit back, kind of enjoy the ride. It, we're going to learn a lot of stuff. We're going to be challenged. And uh, I hope it will bless you as much as it has me as I've been studying here. Verse 1, Titus chapter 1. Paul, 
Now we'll skip the next stuff because it's just kind of long, boring theology. And go down to verse 4. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order. The Scriptures, not here, not in Acts, not anywhere, in Scripture nor in history do we have really any account of exactly when Paul and Titus were in Crete, nor exactly what they did when they were there. But what seems apparent from these verses we just read, there's not much here, but what we get is that Paul and Titus were in Crete, apparently together, and apparently laboring there, evangelizing, planting, establishing churches. And then at some point, the Apostle Paul leaves and leaves Titus there in Crete to finish what was left undone in that endeavor. Now, most of us Americans don't know much geography or history, so it helps us to get a little map here to find out where is Crete. What is Crete? Crete is not a city, it's an island, an island nation, kind of right there in the center of the map, uh, just to the southeast of Greece, and um, it's, it's an island about... 160 miles long, going east to west. Going north to south, its width ranges from about 35 miles to about 6 or 7 miles at its narrowest. And Crete had quite a reputation. In the New Testament times, uh, Crete was widely recognized as for people being full of fraud, being full of greed, being full of fierce violence. For hundreds of years, this island was known for piracy. Both the Greek Empire and the Roman Empire invested a lot of time and energy attempting to suppress Cretan piracy. The wine of Crete was infamous and Drunkenness prevailed throughout the land. The, the, the falsehood of Cretans that they would, would shade the truth and lie and just outright, you know, just, well, people actually, they say that they took a Greek word that meant literally to play the Cretan and they turned that, that little word into a euphemism for to tell a lie. And so when you would use this Greek word, kreditso, it would, it would literally be saying to play the Cretan, but what you meant is you tell a lie. That's the reputation they had. Here in this very letter, we'll see next week that the Apostle Paul quotes from a, a poet who was a Cretan himself, but he lived about 600 years earlier than Paul. And this poet said this, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. A well-earned, well-deserved, rotten reputation. <laughs> the Roman statesman Cicero said of the Cretans, Indeed, moral principles are so divergent that Cretans consider highway robbery to be honorable. 
Polybius, a Greek historian, said, Money is held in such high honor among them that its acquisition is not only regarded as necessary, but as most honorable. So much, in fact, do sordid love of gain and lust for wealth prevail among them that the Cretans are the only people in the world in whose eyes no gain is disgraceful. In other words, any way you can get it is just fine with them and they think it's awesome. That is the place where the Apostle Paul left Titus to be a pastor and church planter. <laughs> How would you like that? This is your mission field. Some of the, you know, the most violent, vile, dishonorable, greedy liars on the planet. There you go. So sometime later, after Paul has left Titus, Maybe it's a few months down the road. Maybe it's a year or even two later. Paul writes this little letter to encourage Titus. And also, as I think it would be read publicly in the, in the churches, it was also written to affirm Titus's authority from the Apostle Paul and his mission among the churches in Crete because it's apparent as we go through this letter, we'll find that, there, that Titus is facing some problems with some of the folks in the churches. So this little book is about building up churches, about bringing them up to maturity. And it raises a question, how do you grow? How do you build up? How do you mature a godly, holy, thriving, growing church in a morally perverse place like Crete? Or for that matter, how do you do that in 21st century America? Because in more and more we are becoming like Crete. How do we build vibrant churches that reach people for Christ in a pagan culture? That's the message of this book. And ultimately, as we'll discover as we go along, the answer is not methodologies. It's not strategies. It's not developing slicker presentations and, and uh, getting flashier media or better programs. But rather, Paul's teaching here to, to Titus and to these churches, it's all about building the people in the churches to be people who make an impact for Jesus where they are. With that said, we really need to go back to those introductory verses that we skipped over, those long, boring theological ones, because obviously neither Paul nor the Scriptures waste any ink. Everything is there for a reason and a purpose. Paul didn't just fill space here in those first few verses, and he didn't run off on a little tangent. There's a lesson for us. If the message of the book is how we build not just churches that make an impact, but we do that by building people who make an impact for Jesus Christ in their culture. When we look back over the last 2,000 years of church history, 
it's a pretty safe statement to say that next to Jesus Christ Himself, there has been no other person who has impacted the church and then and thusly the world like the Apostle Paul. There is no greater preacher of the Gospel throughout history than the Apostle Paul. No greater evangelist. No greater apologist for the faith. No greater author than the Apostle Paul. And so if we really want to learn how to make an impact for Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul is a great place to look. What is it that makes a man like him tick? In these verses, we skipped over what we actually get in Paul's introductory statements. We get a little window, as it were, cut into the heart of Paul where we get to see who he is. And what drives him? What fuels him? What moves him forward? Paul sets out for us in these few verses a model for us to look at. A pattern for us to follow. How we can be a world changer. So let's go back and read the first three verses. Paul a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in His Word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior." It's a lot of words. It's wordy. You just look at that and your, your mind kind of gets tangled up and lost. But it's vacuum-packed and we've got to cut the seal and let it pop open like that bed in a box. There's a lot of stuff here. Paul wants us to notice two things about himself. The first of these is that he is 100% sold out Committed to God. He has an unwavering commitment to God. He demonstrates it in two words that he uses here in just this first phrase. Paul, a servant of God. I don't know about you, but in my mind at least, and I think to most of us, the word servant is a pretty tame word. We, we kind of, servant doesn't really strike us as offensive. It doesn't really, as a matter of fact, for many of us it's kind of an honor. You know, it's, he's a servant, you know. We, we look at that as a good thing. But you see, that word servant is really the same word slave. And that's not a tame word. We really don't like the word slave. We're comfortable with servant. But it's the same word. Paul, the Bond slave of God. See, a slave, a slave has no expectations that their desires are going to be met. That they're, that they will be, they have no expectations to have their, to be fulfilled. Because it's not about them. A slave is committed to the master. 
slave is not really allowed to have expectations and desires. They have to think of the master first. The slave has no rights to their own life. They are owned by the master. So when we think of it that way and we see that Paul says, Paul, a slave of God, it sounds harsh. sounds extreme. I don't know about you, but when I read it that way, I think, well, that's good for Paul. <laughs> nice for him, but that's not for me. <laughs> but you see, if we look at the Scripture carefully, what we discover is the Scripture, not just here, but throughout the Scripture, it lets us understand something. And that is, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are a slave. Bob Dylan, the old songwriter, back in way back in my generation, he didn't get a lot of things right. He did get it right when he said this, you got to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but it's going to be somebody. See, we, we, we're Americans. In America, we think we're, it's the land of the free. I don't belong to anybody. I'm my own person. I make my own choices. It's all up to me. And yet the Scripture says that we were born into slavery. We were slaves of sin. We were slaves of, of Satan. And the only way we get out of that is by giving ourselves to Christ and we become slaves when we place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. We become His slaves. Is that really true? Well, yes it is. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, it says, You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. When Jesus Christ died for you and you placed your faith and trust in Him, He bought you. He paid for you. And you are His. Romans chapter 6, verse 19 calls for us to live as slaves of righteousness. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 22 says that we are slaves of Christ. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 16 says that we are calls for us to live as slaves of God. That's a radical concept. And to us, and I think I speak for you, to most of us as Americans, that is a foreign concept and an offensive concept. To be somebody's slave? To give up my own rights? To give up my life? And yet, the Scripture calls us to do that. It's exactly what Jesus calls us to do. It, intriguingly, it's exactly what He calls us to do. If we want to find life, to have real life, it's what we must do. Luke chapter 9, you may recall these verses. And Jesus said to all, If anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself. Give up your rights. Take up his cross daily. Follow Me. And it gets worse. He says, if, for whoever would save his life, whoever wants to cling to their life, ultimately is going to lose it. But whoever gives up his life for My sake, whoever yields their rights and, and submits to Him as Master, gives our life to Him, He says, we'll find it. We'll keep it. Jesus said, John chapter 10, verse 10, I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. But the only way we get that full life is when we give ourselves to Jesus Christ. When we own Him as Master 
And we become His slave. It's a great paradox. When we seek after our own fulfillment, we wind up empty. But when we abandon our priorities and seek Christ, we find that full and abundant life that He promised. So many never find it because they never want to let go. And I have a feeling that you struggle with that because I struggle with that. A simple way to look at it is how often do you and do I say to the Lord, here I am, what do you want me to do? When we're looking at our day, when we're looking at our time, when we're looking at our resources, our money, when we're looking at our stuff, when we're looking at our, our choices for this and that or the other, how often are we saying, Lord, here I am, what do you want me to do? Here's, my, here's this, what do you want me to do with this? Or how often is it, rather instead of that, we come and we say, hey Lord, here's my plans, will you bless this please? <laughs> or even worse, we just ignore Him altogether. And I have a feeling that if your life is like mine, there's so much of the time that either I ignore Him altogether or I bring my plans and say, Lord, here's my plans, here's my agenda, here's my whatever, and would you make this happen? Would you bless it? But the servant of Christ that Paul is, is calling us to be by His example is one who says, I'm yours, Lord. It's what we sang about earlier in the song. Purify my heart. And he, he goes on and, he, and, he, and as we said, um, I choose to be holy, set apart for you, my Master, ready to do your will. That's what Paul means when he says I'm a slave of Christ. D.L. Moody, he was arguably the greatest evangelist of the 19th century, one of the great Christian leaders, truly, of church history. In the early days of his ministry, a close friend of his, a man named Henry Varley, they were having a private conversation and Henry Varley just commented, he, he made this statement, he said, you know what remains to be seen? What God will do with a man who gives himself fully, wholly to him. Those words rang in Moody's ears. They, they were in, in England when he said that and, and Moody on the ship on the way back to the United States, those words kept going over in his mind and he said, by God's grace, I aim to be that man. And it was over the years that, that Moody, as he really made it his ambition to be that man who was wholly yielded and submitted to the will and the desires of the Master that Moody became that man who was so powerfully uh, effective in ministry for Christ. Being used greatly by God requires giving ourselves fully to God. Being used greatly by God requires giving ourselves fully to God. There's a second word that Paul uses to describe his commitment to God. And it's in the next phrase where he says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, 
word apostle means one who is sent. And it referred, it was a fairly common term in, in that day, uh, to refer to a servant who is sent on a mission on behalf of the Master. So he goes out with the authority of the Master on a, on a job for the Master. That was an apostle. In the Scriptures, the apostles, we might say capital A, Apostles refers to those twelve disciples. You can find the list in Matthew chapter 10. Those twelve disciples minus Judas who betrayed Christ. And then add in the Apostle Paul who was an apostle, as he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, an apostle untimely born. Or Sorry, it's in chapter 15 he says that. These were called apostles because they were Jesus, who is the Master, He taught them. He trained them. He especially gifted them. And He sent them out on the mission with His authority to found the church. So Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20 says that the church was built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Jesus Christ Himself as the chief cornerstone. That's why there are no apostles today. The apostles were specifically taught and sent out by Christ for this job of founding the church. The job was done and the foundation was laid. So Paul, as God's slave, was an apostle. He was a slave on a mission. And he clearly understood what his mission was, his purpose in life was. And you can find it there in verse 3 where he says, the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. God entrusted with Him the duty, the responsibility, the mission of preaching. And Paul was committed to the mission as a slave. Now again, there's a temptation for you and me to look at this word as like we did slave and look at it with Paul and say, well, that's good for him but not for me. Uh, Paul was an apostle and we're not apostles. We just said those apostles are gone. In that sense, capital A, they are. But an apostle, little a, the normal way it was used in that day and time was a slave sent on a mission. And brothers and sisters, are you and I not if you're a believer in Jesus Christ? Have we not been commissioned and sent on a mission Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16. You are the light of the world. Verse 14. Verse 16. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. We're still on a mission to be light. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. We went through this not long ago. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be My witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and in Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. We've been sent out as Jesus' witnesses. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 where it says we are His ambassadors. As though God were making His appeal through us be reconciled to God. We've been sent out to be the mouthpieces of God where we are the ones to speak the words that God would speak to folks who are lost and say, you need a Savior. Jesus Christ died for your sins. Trust in Him and find forgiveness and find life. 
You see, we've been commissioned and sent. In that sense, we are apostles, little a. And so Paul, by his example, is calling us to follow him in unwavering commitment to God by being slaves of God who are ready to do his will and who are busy doing the mission he has given us to do. Very quickly, I'm going to try to run through the next few verses because what we see is Paul lays out, as he goes about to do this mission, he lays out three priorities in his mission, three goals that drive him. They're important. First, again, verse 1, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Notice that next phrase. For, this is the reason what he's moving for, for the sake of the faith of God's elect. What drives Paul here is the the salvation of people. Paul has three very clear priorities. The first, the salvation of people. Paul's first concern is is that people are hopelessly and eternally lost apart from faith in Jesus Christ. People are condemned by sin. They face the judgment of God, eternal judgment. And so Paul is on a mission to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ so that they might believe and be saved. Now, there's a lot of theology in this one little phrase and we don't have time to mind the depths of it, but I'll point it out just so you know it's there because this is a rich thing. Paul says, for the sake of the faith of God's elect, And what's in there is a great debate that has been going on in Christendom from from the early centuries until our very day. And we're not going to solve it today. But it is this tension and this question of the relationship between the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of men in salvation. Does God choose who will be saved? Or does man choose to be saved? Which is it? Calvinism or Arminianism? (laughs) Election versus free will. Which is it? That's the debate. And Paul takes both of those things and without any comment, sticks them together in one sentence. Because the answer is yes. Yes. Through Scripture it's very clear that yes, God chooses. He elects. Those who will be saved. People are saved because God has chosen. He has elected to save them. Verses like Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. He chose us in Him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. You go to the end of the book, into the Revelation. Revelation chapter 13, verse 8. You find the scene in heaven and it says there, about speaking of the Lamb's book of life, that the names of believers were written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. Many other passages we could go to to show that it is true. The Bible is clear. God is sovereign in salvation. But as we said here in this verse, human responsibility is also seen here. See it in two places here. First, the hearers are saved by faith. Paul says he's committed to, in verse 1, for the sake of the faith, of the faith of God's elect. There is a choosing 
to receive, to believe. The hearers are saved by faith. They're responsible for receiving the Gospel by faith. By believing in Jesus Christ. There's another way that human responsibility shows up. And that is that Paul feels the obligation and the responsibility to share the good news, to preach the good news. We saw in verse 3 that he, he, was be, he was entrusted with this message to be a preacher. And Paul recognizes that, be, that he needs to preach the Gospel. There's responsibility here. Even though God is sovereign, there's responsibility. We know John 3.16 shows the... Uh, you know that verse well. God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. How is someone saved? By believing in Christ. There's human responsibility. Two verses later, you have uh, John 3.18. Whoever believes in Him, in Christ Jesus, is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. There's human responsibility. Scriptures clearly and repeatedly teach both divine sovereignty in salvation and also human responsibility. And it's actually both of these realities that drive Paul forward to be faithful to proclaim the Gospel Because the reality is that even in a place like Crete, which is filled with the most vile people on earth, God has folks there who will respond to the Gospel, who will trust Christ. And so, Paul is not afraid to preach the Gospel. matter of fact, he's obligated to preach the Gospel. Even in Crete, likewise, any other places where he or you or I might least imagine that people who would believe in Christ would be. God has His elect, His chosen ones out there who will believe. But as Paul writes in Romans chapter 10 and verse 14, he says, how can they call on the one of whom they have, have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And so Paul's first priority is to be faithful that wherever he is, whenever he is, and whoever's around, he's going to preach the good news of Jesus Christ to a lost world so that people will be saved. And may I say that His first priority therefore ought to be our first priority as well. Paul's second priority. Also, the last phrase now in verse 1. Finally, we get to the last phrase. For the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. Truth. Paul's second priority. Paul has devoted himself to to teaching the truth of God. He doesn't want a bunch of sincere, well-meaning Christians who are ignorant. Sincerity is a good thing, but you can be sincerely wrong. Sincerity needs to be anchored and firmly grounded in truth. But Paul isn't interested in getting a bunch of egghead Christians either where you have a bunch of knowledge in your head. If you'll notice, it says it's the knowledge which accords with godliness. I like the way the NIV says it. It says the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. In other words, the truth of God is transformative. The truth of God is designed to bring about change in life. 
If you and I truly embrace God's Word, we really desire to learn it and to apply it in our life, then the Spirit of God works through the Word of God using the power of God to change us from the inside out. It's possible to come to the Word of God and fill our minds with a bunch of knowledge. But that's not what God intends. It's when we come sincerely and we come desiring to learn and to grow that God uses His words to transform us. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 says that God's Word is living and active. Paul understood that true orthodoxy, that means right belief, brings about orthopraxy, which is right practice. That's his second priority, truth. His third priority is in verse 2, and it's the last one. Paul's third priority, he says, in hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promised before the ages began. His third priority is proclaiming the hope of eternal life. You see, the the faith and the knowledge, Paul says, that, that he preached and taught rested upon this one hope, upon this one confidence that there is more to come. This life is not the end, but is the beginning of an eternal life with Jesus Christ for the one who is trusting in Christ. The great encouragement, the great motivation to live as a believer in this world is the, is the confidence that we have that there's a marvelous and an eternal future that waits for us. If this is all there is to live for, if this world is where our hope is, Paul wrote to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter, uh, chapter 15, and he says, if this is all we hope for in Christ, we are of all people most miserable, most to be pitied. Our hope isn't here. The Christian life is not about here. It's not about now. It's about there. It's about forever. As well as the Christian life, going back to point one, it's not about me. It's about Christ. It's not about me. It's not about now. It's about forever and it's about Jesus. So Paul, wanting to make, he's saying that he just wants to declare it as often as he can to anyone who's a believer for the purpose of encouragement, for the purpose of, of strengthening us in our faith. And he says it as powerful as he can. Eternal life isn't just wishful thinking, but it's a certain reality based on two facts. He says, based on the fact of the character of God, In hope of eternal life, he says, which God who never lies. Literally in the Greek, it says, the without deceit God. It is foreign to His nature to lie. Important stuff to a a culture of people whom considered lying a virtue. God does not lie. And secondly, we know we can count on the fact that, that, that... Heaven is going to happen because He says that this promise was promised before the ages began. Think about this. Here's what He's saying. We can count on the fact that it's going to happen, that heaven is real and it's coming because it wasn't an afterthought. It wasn't that in Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve fell into sin that God went, What am I going to do now? 
Got to come up with plan B. What will it be? And then he comes, okay, we're going to, I'm going to send the Savior. We'll try to save these folks. We'll create heaven. We'll do this. It, it was all designed before anything was ever created, before the ages began, before time began. God created knowing that man would fall into sin. Knowing that He would send His Son, Jesus, the Lamb, this revelation says, slain before the foundations of the world. That He was going to redeem man. That He was going to redeem us. And He was going to provide an eternal future. We can bank on it. See, if we're going to be a people or a church that impacts our families, we're going to be people who impact our neighborhoods, if we're going to be people who impact our workplace, if we're going to be a church that impacts our culture, what Paul has just laid out by his own example here is we need to first be a people of unwavering commitment to God. It shows up by us saying, I'm here, Lord. Whatever You want, I'm ready. And you say, I'm living on mission. The mission You gave me, I'm on it. And you put these priorities, who adopt these priorities of Paul, the priority of the Gospel, that we're going to share the good news of Jesus wherever, whenever, with whomever we can. And we're going to adopt the priority, secondly, of truth. We're going to learn God's truth. We're going to apply God's truth in our life. We're going to share God's truth. And then we're going to keep heaven in view. That's what we live for. Not the stuff of earth that passes away. It passes so quickly. But as Jesus said, we're not going to lay up treasures on earth, but treasures in heaven. We're going to be constantly reminding each other, as Paul is saying here, live for heaven, brother. Live for heaven, sister. Heaven's coming. Don't lose heart. Don't give up. Heaven's coming. Let's pray. Father, we need this message. Because <laughs> the reality is most of us struggle. Every one of these points. We forget about heaven and we get our focus here on the stuff of earth and we get busy building our little empires and gathering our little stuff and pursuing our pleasures and pursuing our desires and we've got our focus on all the wrong things. And so we don't value the truth as we ought and we especially haven't engaged the mission as we ought. We really aren't passionate as we ought to be about sharing the good news of Jesus with a lost world. Forgive us, Lord, for that. Lord, may we live this week, this month, this year, for the rest of our lives. May we live as Your servants and as Your apostles, those who are sent on a mission. May we do that for Your glory, for the sake of Your name, and ultimately in the process, the great bonus, we find life. 
as You really desire it to be for us. May that be who, what describes us as people and as a church. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.